Welcome to the Hackberry House of Chosun. My name is Bob and I'm reading today from a sermon once preached by Charles Spurgeon. This message is from a collection of Spurgeon messages created by Perry Boardman. It's known as Spurgeon's Gems. Today's message is from volume two. There are 63 volumes altogether. And it's number 55. It's called The Exodus and the passage of scripture that he uses uh, to back it all up, Exodus twelve forty one, And it came to pass at the end of the 430 years, even the selfsame day, it came to pass that all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It is our firm conviction and increasing belief that the historical books of Scripture were intended to teach us by types and figures spiritual things. We believe that every portion of scripture history is not only a faithful transcript of what did actually happen, but also a shadow of what happens spiritually in the dealings of God with his people or in the dispensations of his grace towards the world at large. We do not look upon the historical books of scripture as being mere rolls of history, such as profane authors might have written but we regard them as being most true and infallible records of the past and also most bright and glorious foreshadowings of the future or else most wondrous metaphors and marvelous illustrations of things which are verily received among us and most truly felt in the Christian heart. We may be wrong. We believe we are not. At any rate, the very error has given us instruction, and our mistake has afforded us comfort. We look upon the book of Exodus as being a type of the deliverances which God will give to his elect people, not only as a history of what he has done in bringing them out of Egypt by smiting the firstborn, or leading them through the Red Sea, guiding them through the wilderness, but also as a picture of his faithful dealings with all his people, whom, by the blood of Christ, he separates from the Egyptians, and by his strong and mighty hand takes out of the house of their bondage and out of the land of their slavery. Last Sabbath evening we had the type of the Passover, the Paschal Lamb, and we showed you then how the sprinkled blood and the eaten lamb were types of the blood applied for our justification and of the flesh received by inward communion with Jesus, the soul living and feeding upon him. We now take the exodus or the going of the children of Israel out of Egypt as being a type and picture of the going out of all the vessels of mercy from the house of their bondage and as the deliverance of all the lawful captives from the chains of their cruel taskmasters by sovereign and omnipotent grace through the Passover of our Lord Jesus Christ. The land of Egypt is a picture of the house of bondage into which all God's covenant people will, sooner or later, be brought on account of their sin. All those whom God means to give an inheritance in Canaan he will first take down into Egypt. Even Jesus Christ himself went into Egypt before he appeared publicly as a teacher before the world, 
that in his instance, as well as in that of every Christian, the prophecy might be fulfilled, Out of Egypt have I called my son. Everyone who enjoys the liberty wherewith Christ thus make us free must first feel the galling bondage of sin. Our wrists must be made to smart by the fetters of our iniquity, and our backs must be made to bleed by the lash of the law, the taskmaster which drives us to Jesus Christ. There is no true liberty which is not preceded by true bondage. There is no true deliverance from sin unless we have first of all groaned and cried unto God, as did the people of Israel when in bondage in Egypt. We must all serve in the brick kill. We must all be wearied with toiling among the pots, or otherwise we could never realize that glorious verse, Though you have lain among the pots, yet shall you be as the wings of a dove covered with silver and her feathers with yellow gold. We must have bondage before liberty. Before resurrection there must come death. Before life there must come corruption. Before we are brought out of the horrible pit and the miry clay, we must be made to exclaim, I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. And before, like Jonah, we can be fetched out of the whale's belly and delivered from our sin, we must have been taken down to the bottoms of the mountains with the weeds wrapped about our heads, shuddering under a deep sense of our own nothingness and fearing that the earth with her bars was about us forever. Taking this as a key, you will see that the deliverance out of Egypt is a beautiful picture of the deliverance of all God's people from the bondage of the law and the slavery of their sins. First, consider the mode of their going out. When the children of Israel went out of Egypt, it is a remarkable thing that they were forced out by the Egyptians. Those Egyptians who had enriched themselves with their slavery said, Get hence, for we be all dead men. They begged and entreated them to go. Yes, they hurried them forth, gave them jewels that they might depart, and made them quit the land. And it is a striking thing that the very sins which oppress the child of God in Egypt are the very things that drive him to Jesus. Our sins make slaves of us while we are in Egypt, and when God the Holy Spirit stirs them up against us, how do they beat us with cruel lashes till our soul is worn with extreme bondage? But those very sins, by God's grace, are made the means of driving us to the Savior. The dove flees not to its cot unless the eagle does pursue it. So sins like eagles pursue the timid soul, making it fly into the clefts of the rock Christ Jesus to hide itself. Once, beloved, our sins kept us from Christ, but now every sin drives us to him for pardon. I had not known Christ if I had not known sin. I had not known a deliverer if I had not smarted under the Egyptians. The Holy Spirit drives us to Christ 
just as the Egyptians drove the people out of Egypt. Again, the children of Israel went out of Egypt covered with jewels and arrayed in their best garments. The Jews have ever on their feast days been desirous of wearing jewels and all kinds of goodly apparel. And when they were too poor to possess them, they would borrow jewels for the purpose. And so it was at this remarkable Passover. They had been so oppressed that they had kept no festival for many a year, but now they all arrayed themselves in their best garments. And at the command of God did borrow from the Egyptians jewels of silver and jewels of gold and clothing, and the Lord gave them favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they lent unto them such things as they required, and they spoiled the Egyptians. Now let none say that this was robbery. It would have been had it not been commanded of God. But as a king can set aside his own laws, so God is above his laws, and whatsoever he orders is right. Abraham would have been guilty of murder in taking up his knife to slay his son had not God commanded him to do so. But the fact of God having commanded the action made it justifiable and right. But moreover, the word borrowed here is, by the best translators, said to mean nothing more than that the children of Israel asked them for their jewels. They had no intention whatever of returning them and entered into no agreement to do so. And it was most just that they should do this because they had toiled for the Egyptians for years without having had any remuneration. Sometimes necessity has no law. How much more shall that God who is above all necessities be the master of his own laws? The great potentate, the only wise God, the king of kings, has a right to make what laws he pleases. And let not vain man dare to question his maker when his maker gives him a command. But the fact is very significant. The children of Israel did not go out of Egypt poorly clad. They went out with their best clothing on, and moreover, they had borrowed jewels of gold and jewels of silver and raiment, and they went gladly out of the land. Ah, beloved, that is just how a child of God comes out of Egypt. He does not come out of his bondage with his old garments of self-righteousness on, oh no, as long as he wears those, he will always stay in Egypt. But he marches out with the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ upon him and adorned with the goodly graces of the Holy Spirit. Oh, beloved, if you could see a child of Israel coming out of the bondage of sin, you would say, Who is this that cometh up from the wilderness? Is this the poor slave who was making bricks without straw? Is this the wretch who had nothing but rags and tatters on him? Is this the poor creature whose whole person was soiled with the mud of Egypt's river and who labored in Goshen's land without wage or pay? Yes, 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 it is he. And now he is arrayed like a king and appareled as a prince. Lo, each of these men of labor comes in like a bridegroom, decked for his wedding. And their wives seem like royal brides clad in their bridal robes. Every child of God, when he comes out of Egypt, 
is arrayed in goodly apparel. The poet says, Strangely, my soul, art thou arrayed by the great sacred three. In sweetness, harmony of praise, let all thy powers agree. Note, moreover, that these people obtained their jewels from the Egyptians. God's people never lose anything by going to the house of bondage. They win their choicest jewels from the Egyptians. Strangely true it is, sins do me good, said an old writer once, because they drive me to the Savior, and so I get good by them. Ask the humble Christian where he got his humility, and ten to one he will say that he got it in the furnace of deep sorrow on account of sin. See another who is tender in conscience. Where did he get that jewel from? It came from Egypt, I'll be bound. Uh, we get more by being in bondage under conviction of sin than we often do by liberty. That bondage state under which you are now laboring, you poor, wayworn child of sorrow, shall be good for you. For when you come out of Egypt, you will steal jewels from the Egyptians. You will have won pearls from your very convictions. Oh, some say, I, I've been for months and years toiling under a sense of sin. I cannot get deliverance. Well, I hope you will get it soon. But if you do not, you will have gained all the more jewels by stopping there. And when you come out, you'll very likely make the best of Christians. What more noble preacher to sinners than John Bunyan? And who suffered more than he did? For years he was doubting and hesitating, sometimes thinking that Christ would save him, at other times thinking he was never one of the elect, and continually bemoaning himself. But he got jewels while he was in bondage that he would never have obtained anywhere else. Who could have made a large collection of jewels like Pilgrim's Progress if he had not lived in Egypt? It was because he tarried so long in Egypt that he gathered so many jewels. And, oh, beloved, let us be content to stop a little while in distress, for the jewels that we shall win there will adorn us all our lives long, and we shall one night come out of Egypt, not with weeping, but with songs and crowns of rejoicing. We shall have the garments of praise for the spirit of heaviness. The sackcloth shall be removed from our loins and the ashes from our head, and we shall march forth decked with jewels, glittering with gold and silver. But there is one more thought concerning the way of their coming out, and that is, they came out in haste. I think a child of God, whenever he has the opportunity of coming out of bondage, will quickly avail himself of it. When a man comes to me and says, I am under deep conviction of sin, and so on, and seems to be very well content talking about tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, saying, well, I, I, I can repent when I please, and I can believe when I please, and always procrastinating. I, I think to myself that that is not the Lord's deliverance. For when his people go forth out of Egypt, they are always in a hurry to get out. I never met with a poor sinner under a sense of sin who was not in haste to get his burden off his back. No man has a broken heart unless he wants to have it bound up directly. Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart, says the Holy Ghost. He never says tomorrow. 
Today is his continual cry, and every true-born Israelite will pant to get out of Egypt whenever he has the opportunity. Oh, he won't stop to knead his dough and make his bread to carry with him, but he'll carry the unleavened bread on his shoulders. He'll be in such a hurry to get away. He who hates the noisomeness of the dungeon longs to hear the wards of the lock creak that he may find liberty. He who has been long in the pit hastens to escape. He who has suffered the taskmaster's whip flees like a dove under his window that he may find peace and deliverance in Christ Jesus. But having noticed three points of similarity in the emigration of the Israelites and the deliverance of God's people, we should lead your attention secondly to a remark concerning the magnitude of this deliverance. Did it never strike you what a wonderful exodus of the people of Israel this was? Do you know how many people went out? According to the very lowest calculations, there must have been two and a half million all assembled together in one place and all coming out of the country at one time. And then, besides these, there went out with them an exceeding great company, a, a mixed multitude. The number must have been so large that it is impossible to imagine it. Suppose the people of London should all go out at once to march through a wilderness. It would be a marvelous thing in history such as we can hardly conceive of. But here were, to say the least, two millions of people all at one time coming out from the midst of Egypt and going forth from the country. They journeyed, it is said, from Ramesses to Sukkoth. The Ramesses was where they were employed in building a city for the king. They stayed at Sukkoth, or booths. Because such an immense multitude could not find houses, they therefore made booths. And hence the children of Israel ever afterwards kept the feast of tabernacles or tents or booths to commemorate their building of the tents or booths at Sukkoth when they first came out of Egypt. What a mind Moses must have had to direct so great an army. Or rather, what a spirit must that have been that rested on him so that he could lead them all to one place and then guide them all through the wilderness. If you bear in mind this mighty number, you'll be astonished to think what a quantity of manna it must have required to feed them and what a stream of water that must have been which followed them. Talk of the armies of Xerxes or the host of the Persians, speak of the mighty armies that kings and potentates have assembled. Well, here was an army that outvied them all. But, oh, beloved, how much grandeur is there in the thought of the multitudes Christ redeems with his blood. Christ did not die to save a few. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be abundantly satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many. A multitude which no man can number shall stand before the throne of God and of the Lamb. Oh, wondrous emigration, the emigration of myriads of souls. 
Let us compare them neither with the stars of heaven, nor the dust of the earth, nor the sand of the sea. But let us remember that God has promised to Abraham, as the sand upon the seashore, even so shall your seed be. Who can count the dust of Jacob and the number of the fourth part of Israel? Ah, they lick up the earth like water. The land is utterly devoured before them. Oh, mighty God, how great is that deliverance which brings out a host of your elect, more countless than the stars and as innumerable as the sands upon a thousand shores. All hail to your power that does all this. You will have another idea of the greatness of this work when you think of the different stations which the children of Israel must have occupied. I suppose they were not all equally destitute. They were not all toiling in the same brick kills, but some of them would be in one place, some in another, some working in the king's court, some for the meaner Egyptians, the more in poverty, dispersed everywhere. But wherever they might be, they all came from hence. If Pharaoh had slaves in his halls, they marched out the selfsame day from his golden-gated palace at Memphis or at Thebes. They all came forth that same day from their different situations, and guided by God, they all came to one spot where they built their booths and called it Sukkoth Booths. As when the autumn does decline and the winter approaches, We've seen the chattering swallows gather upon the housetop, prepared for distant flights beyond the purple sea, where they might find another summer in another land. And so did these Israelites from all their countries thus assemble and stand together, about to take their flight across a trackless wilderness to that land of which God had told them, saying, Behold, I will bring you to a land that flows with milk and honey. We must stop right there. We'll talk more about this wonderful exodus next time around. Thank you for listening. Do look around my site and uh, find some other things that I think will bless you. This then is the Hackberry House of Chosun, and this audio is being released on the 9th of May, 2023. Lord willing, we'll talk again real soon. Bye-bye.